When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have, not, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that um, we are not all-knowing, we are not all-wise, we are not the ones with all the authority, and so we humble ourselves at your feet, Father, asking this morning that you would be our teacher. Father, that you would move these words to not just hit our ears, but to hit our hearts, Lord, that we would see our need for Jesus this morning. And that, Father, you would, through your Spirit, do what only you can truly do for us, and that you would lift up Jesus, that we might see him in his glory and worship him. Thank you that you are gracious to us this morning. Would you have your way among us? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, several months ago, I was at a, a restaurant uh, with my wife, and it was kind of shortly after uh, COVID and things were kind of opening up, you know, that kind of first season. And, and so we went into a restaurant, uh, and we were just so excited to be like going to a restaurant. It, it was so fun. And we, and we walk in the doors, and it was one of those restaurants where you like, you kind of order, and then you sit down, and then they'll bring you your food. Um, and so we, we, we order, and then we, we make our way to go, go sit down. And, and as we're waiting, my wife needs to go use the restroom, so she stands up and leaves, and she's kind of gone for a few minutes. Um, and as she comes back, she tells me uh, she was walking towards the bathroom and on the ground there was one of those signs that said like, you know, slippery when wet, like the floor is wet. All of us ignore those signs. I don't know. I mean, I do. I don't know about you. I, I see those and I'm like, I've seen a million of those in my life. The floor is never really wet, so I don't really pay attention to them. Uh, so my wife walks right through the, the, this area where it's wet and she slips and falls down right in the very front of the restaurant, which is why she was gone for so long. And so when she comes back, she's like, Nick, I, I slipped and I fell down. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, are you okay? She's like, I heard something crack, but like, I think, I think I'm okay. I think it was just, you know, like, it's a good, one of those good cracks, like a chiropractor crack, you know what I'm saying? Like, she's like, it's good. I, I think I'm okay. It's no, it's no problem. Um, but of course, it, within a couple of minutes, the manager walks over to our table and he's so apologetic. And he's, I know the whole time, I'm like, this guy's trying to feel us out to know whether or not we're going to try to sue the restaurant. And I'm not going to tip my cards to him like, hey man, it's totally fine. I'm just going to kind of let him say what he wants to say and, and see what happens. And so, uh, he kind of comes and he's like, I'm so sorry, ma'am. Like, we absolutely, that should not, that is totally our fault. We should not have had that happen. Like, are you okay? Is everything okay? We should fill out a form. Um, and what, what ended up happening from this little bit of, of suffering for my wife, she, she got hurt, but ultimately she, she's okay. From this one little moment of a slight inconvenience, a little bit of pain, we got that meal comped. But we didn't just get the meal comped. They gave us a return meal comp ticket, which was smart of them, by the way, because they're like, hey, come back to us again. Don't let this be your last experience. But we got two free date nights out of just a little slip and fall with just a little bit of pain. <laughs> I, I, I was counting my blessings there. But sometimes, sometimes we know this, that a little inconvenience can sometimes, even though we don't want it, can turn into a bit of a blessing. Sometimes inconvenience or even suffering can be a grace disguised. We don't really feel it in the moment, but maybe down the road we realize that that was actually a grace disguised. I'd like to propose this morning that one of the greatest graces in our lives is suffering. We often don't think that. We think suffering is almost always a cruel, uninvited guest, an interruption of God's promises, and sometimes maybe even a sign that God is punishing us. We view suffering as something to be avoided at all costs. We would never consider suffering a grace disguised. But when we read the pages of Scripture, we are confronted with a very different worldview of suffering. You see, for humanity, our default status is to protect ourselves from suffering at all costs. But in the coming of Christ to earth to save humanity, what we see in Jesus is that he comes to self-sacrifice no matter the cost. We see in Jesus someone who willingly walks towards suffering. And so maybe, maybe we have a wrong view of suffering, particularly suffering for the name of Jesus. The cross, which Jesus is working up to in this point in his life, the cross completely transforms how we view suffering. It completely changes it, particularly suffering for the name of Jesus. Let's look at this passage together this morning. As we come to chapter 18, we have a very distinct change in scenery. Jesus has been with his disciples for a while, sharing a meal with them, encouraging them, taking communion with them, praying for them. And they leave this meal and Jesus knows the hour has come. It's time for him to be arrested and crucified. And John tells us in very John-like language, he says at the beginning of chapter 18, there was a garden and Jesus and his disciples entered it. Now, if you've been with us through the book of John, you know that at certain points throughout John's gospel, he pulls out these creation themes. In fact, the very beginning of the gospel, John 1.1 says, in the beginning, John is directly drawing back to creation to get us to think about 
God creating the world. And in the beginning, there was God and it was Jesus. That Jesus was there in the beginning before anything was made. He was there because he made everything. And now as we come towards the end of Jesus' life, he says, there was a garden and they entered it. I don't think that's an accident by John. John was there. He knows the name of the garden, but he just tells us there was a garden and they entered it. Reminiscent of the Garden of Eden where everything began for humanity. But this will be a different story that happens in this garden. You see, in the first garden, we see human beings, they walked with God and yet they rebelled against him and brought death where there was only life. But now Jesus goes back into another garden, a garden in which he would go off into to commune with the Lord and in this garden, Jesus will obey his father and he will bring life where there is only death. In the rest of this narrative, we see two radically different approaches to suffering, a sinful one and a godly one. Throughout the rest of this se section, we see man's pursuit of comfort and Jesus's pursuit of suffering. I'll highlight three for us as we work our way through. The first one is this. We see that the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in force, but Jesus comes in surrender. Look at this with me in chapter, in verse three. Judas procured for himself a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they were there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus has, Judas has left Jesus to go betray him, to go sell him and, and make a little bit of profit. And in the process, he brings with him a band of soldiers into this garden. Possibly, I was shocked by this, by the way, possibly up to upwards of about 200 men coming to arrest Jesus. E possibly even 600. There, this could be a huge number of soldiers that are with Judas to come and arrest Jesus. And it tells us that they're carrying torches and weapons. Now, why would you carry those things? Why would you carry weapons with you? The only reason you would carry weapons with you is unless you are, you are perceiving a threat, unless you expect to, the need to protect yourself from someone or something harmful. This band of soldiers in their massive numbers come in with weapons expecting that they need to defend themselves from a very powerful man. They've heard the stories. Jesus is a miracle worker. He's done things that no one else can do. They've, they've heard the stories of him doing powerful things. And I wonder if their imaginations are running wild. We need to bring all the weapons we have in case he does something crazy. We must protect ourselves from suffering. So they bring weapons. They also bring torches. Now you bring torches only if you expect somebody to be hiding if you need light to find someone that's not easily spotted, they're expecting Jesus to run and hide and flee from the coming suffering. So they bring torches so that they can find him in the midst of a dark garden. This makes sense to us. This is the biggest arrest in human history. Human beings are going to arrest God. That's, I mean, that's a big arrest. That'd make the news, Right? We would all expect, if, if, we're, if I'm these soldiers, I'm probably expecting at some point in this pursuit, everyone's flipping on NBC and is going to see Rabbi Jesus flying down the 405 in his first century chariot, right? <laughs> like this is going to be a big deal. It's gonna, he's going to run. He's not going to want to come with us. But unlike the Garden of Eden in Genesis, there's no hiding in this story. There's no need for them to call out, where are you, Jesus. No, they don't need to go looking in the dark because the light of the world is coming forward. And he's saying, here I am. See, the soldiers come in force, but Jesus comes in surrender because he knows that it's time to willingly walk towards suffering. It's time to willingly walk towards suffering. Jesus has always been ready to do this. In fact, in the incarnation, in the coming of Jesus to earth and being born He's entering into suffering. He's willingly walking towards suffering. All throughout his life, the more and more Jesus' ministry becomes public, he's walking towards suffering. Every healing, he gets more popular. There's more of a spotlight on him. He's walking towards suffering. 
As he enters into Jerusalem, he knows he's coming in for the last time walking towards suffering. As he leaves this meal with his disciples to go into the garden, he knows he's walking towards suffering. And as the band of soldiers comes to him, looking for him with torches and weapons, Jesus doesn't run, he doesn't hide, he doesn't fight, he doesn't try to prolong it. He walks right towards them and says, who are you looking for? Verse four, then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Friends, this is the gospel. Jesus, the all-knowing God who has ordained everything since before the world began, knowing everything that would happen to him, his betrayal, his loneliness, his fear, his pain, receiving the wrath of God on the cross, ultimately death, knowing all of these things would happen to him, he willingly came forward. Nobody had to convince him. Nobody had to persuade him. He willingly came forward of his own accord, and he doesn't bring a weapon with him. He just says, I am. I am he. Did you catch what happened when he says that too? That everyone, maybe 200 soldiers, all fall down to the ground when Jesus says, I am he? Something's happening there. I can't wait to watch the highlights when we get to heaven. Like this, something's happening here that's profound. Jesus lets them get back up. Let's try this again. Who are you looking for? Oh, Jesus, I am he. Jesus willingly walks towards suffering. Next we see this. Peter, with Jesus, draws the sword. But Jesus is gonna do something different. He's going to tell Peter to put his sword away because Jesus is here to drink from the cup, not to draw a sword. As Peter sees these band of soldiers come, he's ready to fight in classic Peter style. And he pulls out his sword, probably not like, like a Pirates of the Caribbean sword. This is probably more like a, like, a, like a long dagger, right? He pulls out this sword and he cuts off a guy's ear like Mike Tyson style. He just slices this, this dude's ear off. Peter's ready to fight whoever is going to come and mess up what they have going on. In Peter's mind, I imagine he thinks that all of this is a total wreck to the plan. Jesus can't be arrested, not on my watch. Remember what he said in the past before, Jesus, I'll never leave you. Jesus, no way you're going to die. Peter loves the Lord Jesus. And he will fight. He will kill to protect Jesus. You can imagine the anxiety and the fear for Peter. Peter spent the last few years walking every day with Jesus, and now he's faced with the moment of possibly being without Jesus. And he's probably terrified. He doesn't want the suffering that's going to come from the loneliness of being without Jesus, of having everything they've been doing for the last three years ruined and thrown out the window. He doesn't want that suffering. And so he pulls out a blade to fight to protect himself from suffering and to protect the Jesus that he loves from suffering too. But Jesus tells him, Peter, put your sword away. says, you're striving to protect yourself. I'm striving to surrender myself. And he says to him, he says, Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The cup is a, is a, is a rich metaphor throughout the Old Testament of God's wrath and God's anger towards sin. That God has a burning hot cup of wrath for sin. It is perfectly justified. It is perfectly righteous. It is perfectly deserved towards sin. He hates it with everything in him. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, we're not here to pull out swords and fight. The whole reason I'm here is to suffer. The whole reason I'm here is to take that cup that is reserved for sin and for sinners and drink it on behalf of those whom I've chosen and whom I've called. And by you pulling out that sword, you aren't going to let me do what I'm here to do. You are opposing my mission. I am here to lay down my life, 
to drink the cup of God's wrath so that those who will believe in me don't have to. Meaning for us as followers of Jesus now and today, we don't have to wonder, is God gonna someday punish me for that sin in my past? Is God gonna punish me for those things that I just keep struggling to fight and, and get rid of? Is, is, is one day God gonna bring down some form of, form of punishment because he's so angry at me and he's just waiting for the right moment? Because Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath, we don't ever have to wonder if there's any punishment or wrath left for us and our sins because Jesus drinks it down until it's empty. At the very center of the gospel, we have a savior who lays down his rights and suffers for the benefit of undeserving sinners. And he's calling Peter to do the same. The Gospel of Luke tells us that Jesus heals this man's ear. I wonder what happens to this man later down the road when he sees the death and resurrection of Jesus. We know that there were many who put their faith in him. Maybe this man was one of them. And maybe in this moment, Jesus is telling Peter, rather than make this man suffer, I'm calling you to suffer for his benefit because that's what I do for you. And he calls us to do the same. The story continues and Jesus gives himself up. He's arrested and they bind him and they put him on trial. And in the midst of this trial, we have two scenes happening at the same time. We have Peter who's around a fire with a bunch of these people that came to arrest Jesus and it tells us that it's cold outside and so they're warming themselves. While that's happening, Jesus is on trial and he's being questioned, he's being hit, he's being mocked and abused. And we see Peter three times deny Jesus. One, a servant girl walks up to him and essentially says, you're not a Christian, are you? You're not with that Jesus guy, are you? And his confession looks very different than Jesus' was in the garden where Jesus says, I am. He, Peter says, I am not. I will not identify with that man. Then the rest of them say the same thing. Wait a minute, no, no, no. You're with him, weren't you? You're, you're a follower of his, aren't you? And now Peter doubles down. I am not. To which then one of the eyewitnesses, a relative of the man whose ear got chopped off, says, uh-uh, I saw you there. Peter now, he's denied Jesus once, he's denied Jesus twice. How much harder is it for him to now just do it one more time? So he says, no way, I am not. Obvious question for us, but why does Peter deny being a disciple? We don't have to think too hard about this because we know what this would feel like in this moment. Why does he deny being a disciple? Because he knows that the suffering that would come from confessing Jesus wasn't worth the cost. In this moment, he preferred the comfort of their acceptance. Jesus wasn't good enough. And John tells us, in John-like style, he says, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves, and Peter, who was with them, was also standing and warming himself. I don't think that's just a description of what's physically happening. Peter is seeking the warmth and the comfort of fellowship with sinners. This is what this is communicating. He was with them, warming himself just like they were. He was in agreement with them. He was in fellowship with them. He was in intimacy with them. The, the haters of Jesus, the arresters, the opposers of Jesus, Peter found comfort from the warmth of that community in this moment. Every one of us knows the tempting warmth of that fire. At the same time, Jesus is on trial. And look at, look at what Jesus says. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answers, 
Essentially, I, I've been very open. I have not hid my teaching. I have, I have taught it publicly in the synagogues and the temples where lots of people gather. If you want a credible witness to testify to who I am and what I've said, go ask my disciples. What's Jesus saying at the same moment Peter is denying him? Go ask Peter. I trust him. He's a faithful witness of who I am and what I've said. At the very same time, Peter is denying knowing Jesus. Is Jesus wrong? Did he make a mistake about Peter? I don't think so. Jesus has chosen Peter. And despite this moment of failure for Peter, despite this moment of choosing comfort over the suffering that comes with associating with Jesus, Jesus knows Peter's my boy. I've chosen him. He will be a faithful witness to who I am and what I've done. This failure won't define him. This whole time, Jesus is interceding for his disciples. He did it in the garden when he said, if you're just here for me, let my disciples go. And he does it here. Ask my disciples who I am. They'll be a faithful witness. They'll tell you. In this moment, it becomes crystal clear. Peter cannot follow Jesus until Jesus dies for him. Peter can't follow Jesus faithfully until Jesus dies for him. None of us can. Because the gospel invitation says this, die to yourself and follow Jesus, a crucified Savior. The invitation of the gospel is die to your dreams, to your desires, to your own glory, to you being in charge of your own life, to you just making sure you're comfortable and safe your whole life. Die to yourself and come and follow a crucified, suffering servant. We will not do that until he goes first. And he does. He goes first. He goes to the cross on our behalf, suffering in our place, dying to save us, willingly coming forward and walking towards suffering so that the cross will save us from our sins. And not only save us, but then transform us into different kinds of disciples. Transform us into those who will willingly walk towards suffering for Christ because our Savior willingly walked towards it to save us. The cross saves us and transforms us. And it becomes the witness of the rest of the New Testament. As we look through the, the rest of the Bible from this point forward, we see descriptions of suffering that blow our minds. We see a gospel-centered, cross-centered view of suffering. The way the Bible talks about suffering from this point forward is incredible. It never minimizes the pain to say, it's no big deal. Suffering's whatever. Just find the silver lining. It's fine. No, it never minimizes the pain of suffering. But what the rest of the New Testament does is it basks in the grace of suffering. Suffering for the name of Christ. Look at what the rest of the New Testament says. I just pulled every verse I could find this week on suffering in the New Testament. And I just want to highlight a few things it says. For, this is, this is the, the, a gospel-centered perspective of suffering for Christ's name. The New Testament says this, is that suffering for the name of Jesus is not an accident and it comes from God's hand. It is according to the sovereign hand of God. Do we have that slide? It's in there. It says from God's hand. There it is. Boom. I need to see this. From God's hand. This is Philippians chapter one. It says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The New Testament says the suffering that you and I experience for being a follower of Jesus is something that is granted to us. In the same vein that it has been granted to us, the faith to believe in him, it's also been granted to you that you get to suffer for the name of Christ. 
It was ordained for Christ to suffer, was it not? Why are we then feeling the need to be offended that our suffering for Christ might not also be ordained by him as well? We think we're better than Jesus? Yeah, Jesus, your, your suffering was totally ordained, totally planned, totally for the glory of God, but you would never do that for me. That's not what the Bible says. For it has been granted to you to suffer for the name of Jesus. There must be something about this suffering that's good and not just an uninvited guest, but a grace disguised. It is according to the plan of God that we would suffer for the name of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament also points to this, that suffering is something to rejoice in. Not rejoice after, but to rejoice in. Acts chapter 5 says this, then they left the presence of the council after they had been persecuted and suffered for the name of Jesus. What did they leave? They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for Jesus. They rejoiced in it. It's a cross-centered perspective. The other thing the New Testament says is this about suffering, is that when we suffer for Christ, it actually unites us to him. This is what Philippians chapter 3 says. After he's talking about considering everything as loss, I consider all, everything as loss. Why? So that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The New Testament talks about when we suffer for Christ, we share in suffering with him. We share in his suffering, which I think means this, that, there is, that the comfort of Christ comes through suffering for his name. There is a way in which we know Christ deeper and more fully through suffering that we will not know him through in abundance. Despite all of the garbage out there that just talks about you stepping into the blessings that God has for you and the riches that he has for you. When we read the Bible, we see that there's also a lot of suffering that the Lord has for us to step into, but it actually is, means we get to share in the sufferings of Christ. We get to have more of Jesus Christ through suffering. That suffering would be a better companion for the journey than abundance because it would push us to Christ. It would force us to rely more on him. And that's good. I think we could even say that Jesus is nearer to us in our suffering for his name. The Bible tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted. He's near to you at all times, but I think like a loving father, he pushes in when his children are suffering. He comes closer to care. The New Testament also says this, that suffering is productive. It's not meaningless. It, it actually does something. This is what 2 Corinthians says. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That the suffering for Jesus you experience now isn't just happening to you. It isn't just something you endure through. It's actually producing something for you that you will enjoy more fully when you see Jesus. I don't even know if we can comprehend that. Pain is real, but pain that is productive is something that we can endure. And this, this pain, this suffering for Jesus' name even produces faith in others. As they see you suffer for the name of Jesus, it is a credible witness to them about the worth of Christ. Because I imagine... One day we enter in the gates of heaven and we are with Jesus and we look back on those light and momentary afflictions. I wonder if there will be moments when Jesus shows us, hey, that suffering you walked through helped produce faith in this person. How light does that suffering now look in compared to the glory right now? The New Testament also says this about suffering. It is inevitable. You can't stop it from coming. I think if we're honest, we kind of disagree. We kind of think we can live our lives as Christians in a way that we're faithful and also avoid suffering. That's not what the Bible says. It's what Jesus says. Remember, 
No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Or 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's the Bible's promise. The last one is this. Maybe the reigning chorus is this, is that suffering for Christ is a blessing. The words of Jesus, Matthew chapter 5, say this, blessed are you, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, blessed are you. Rejoice and be glad when unjust evil happens to you because you're a Christian. Not because you were just dumb, but because you were a Christian. Let's take the words of Peter the very man in this moment who decides that comfort is better than suffering, that decides to deny Jesus and find the comfort of humanity's acceptance is better than saying, I'm with Christ. Peter was transformed by the cross. I I was tempted to just spend the rest of our time just reading the whole book of 1 Peter because it is amazing. Go home this week, read the book of 1 Peter through the lens of suffering for the name of Jesus with this man in mind in this scene where he denies Christ three times. Look at what Peter says. 1 Peter chapter 4. He says this. Oh, no. Did I not put 4 up? Shoot. My bad. I got to find 1 Peter. Pressure's on. 1 Peter 4 says this. Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter, deny Jesus. Here's what he says. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. The old Peter said comfort was better than the cross. The old Peter denied Christ because he didn't want suffering and said he would rather make others suffer than him suffer for Christ. That was the old Peter. And then the cross happened and Jesus redeemed him and restored him and filled him with the Holy Spirit. And now this Peter says that same kind of suffering, he says, it is a gracious thing. You are blessed when it happens. Rejoice and be glad when you are treated unjustly. Here's, I think, the Bible's question for us today. Do you? Do you rejoice when you are treated unjustly because you carry the name of Christ. We need to beg the Holy Spirit of God to make us those kinds of people because we can't do it ourselves. To be people who would rejoice when others revile you because you say, I'm with Jesus to not be afraid of suffering, but to rejoice when it comes. I can't make myself somebody like that. You can't either. We must beg the Spirit of God to make us people like that. So as we come to a close, here's my question for you this morning. Where are you choosing comfort over Christ? Where are you seeking the fading warmth of acceptance and approval? Let me give you a couple of areas I think that we are. One is just being willing to be identified as a Christian. 
let's be honest. It is, we are experiencing an increasing difficulty of confessing, I'm with Jesus. It's becoming more difficult to do so without receiving scorn, dirty looks, judgment, being associated with a whole host of people we might not want to be associated with. It's becoming increasingly difficult in those conversations to say, yeah, I, I, I'm a Christian. And we think we, that, that that Christian identity is just a card we got to keep secret as long as we can. Let's win their approval. Let's help them to think that we're normal and regular people. And then at the right time, I'll show my cards. We're afraid. We're afraid of confessing, I'm with Jesus. I actually believe in him. I actually trust in him. I actually follow him. I actually believe what he says. We would rather the comfort of someone's acceptance and approval than just simply confess, yeah, that's, I'm a Christian. But Jesus, before, in front of every being in existence, will one day confess that he identifies with you. He says, this one's mine. I died for this one. How about in evangelism? Let's be honest. Most of us will not share the gospel with someone because we don't want the suffering. I'm not saying this to feel guilt in your life, but when we read about suffering in the New Testament, we have to... We have, to, we have to look at it face, in the face and we have to look at ourselves and realize, I am afraid of sharing the gospel. I am afraid of telling someone that they are a sinner in need of God's grace and that Jesus Christ has come and paid the price for their sins and if they turn and believe in him, they will be saved. I am afraid of telling someone that because of the suffering that will come my way. And that suffering could be a whole host of things. To a loss of friendship, a loss of job, to as, as small as it feels awkward. We won't do it. But this same Peter, what does he say? He says, if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. But some of us have designed our lives to be so that no one will ask. We, we avoid revealing that we're a Christian. We try to hide our convictions, our opinions, our perspectives that are biblical. Let's avoid it as long as possible so that that person doesn't ask me. Because then if they ask me, then I have to tell them. And then I feel awkward and then I suffer and then I don't know what to do. What if I don't know the answers and I, I look dumb? What if they don't like me? What if they associate me with so-and-so? And so we say, let's just make it so they don't have to ask. Here's what I've become increasingly convinced of is that as followers of Jesus, we must be ready to willingly step towards suffering for the name of Christ. That if we are just simply waiting for somebody to ask a question, probably going to be waiting a while. We need to be willing and ready to take a step towards suffering like Christ does. Doesn't wait for the soldiers to come and find him like, oh, you finally found me? Oh, oh, I will gladly tell you who I am. I am Jesus. You want me to go with you? Okay, here we go. No, he goes towards them, walks towards suffering and says, here I am. I wonder if for some of us, there are relationships where we need to leave this week and we need to be the one that goes first. We need to be the one that takes the step forward to say, I am willing to step into the awkward, the uncomfortable, the suffering to say something. Even if suffering comes my way. Because even if that happens, I get to share in the sufferings of Christ. Maybe one more. I think a lot of us are very afraid of the suffering that comes with simply standing with the word of God. As we live in a world that is increasingly contrary to the word of God, we find it shameful to identify with the words of scripture, 
when it comes to controversial issues. We would rather not. We would rather the acceptance of people thinking that we're relevant, that we care, than to align ourselves with the words of God. We try to be a Christian and agree with everyone. And so we get afraid of the suffering that comes when we say, when we talk about the Lordship of Christ, that He is in charge. We get afraid of the suffering that comes from defending, from, from the biblical values of defending the lives of the vulnerable, the poor, the immigrant, the unborn. We get afraid of confessing those things. We get afraid of what would come, 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 come for us if, if we identify with the sexual ethic of Scripture and how we might be labeled or how we identify with what the Bible says about money and how we should use it and how we should spend it or aligning ourselves with the theology and the truth of the scriptures, even if people in power or in influence or in spiritual authority are, are, are disagreeing with it. We're afraid to stand up for what's true and right in the word because suffering might come for us. Some of us are stuck in a pre-cross Peter mindset. I must avoid suffering at all costs. I will fight to make sure I don't suffer. I will run and hide to make sure no one knows so I don't suffer for the name of Jesus. All of it is out of fear. But church, because Christ is who he says he is, because the cross has happened, and because Christ is resurrected and ascended and coming again, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid of anything or anyone. One of, the, one of the most popular commands in all of the scripture, do not be afraid. Why? Because I am with you. Do not be afraid. Not because you're so strong and you're so powerful and you can take anything anyone throws at you. No. Do not be afraid because I am with you. I have overcome the world. I love you. I am for you. No one can take anything from you because I am protecting your inheritance for you. Do not be afraid because Jesus is who he says he is. And he's done what the Bible says he did. He died. You're forgiven. He rose. You will too. He has so much for us in the road of suffering. You don't need to be afraid. In fact, when you read the Bible and you read the New Testament and the way it talks about suffering, that there is more for you to be had in the road of suffering for the name of Jesus than there is if you don't. Because it says, if we live faithfully, we will be persecuted. And the more that we're persecuted, the more we get of Christ. The more he presses closer and nearer to us. I want to close with this. I'm going to invite the worship team on up. I want to read for you a story from the book of Acts of maybe one of the greatest moments of suffering for the name of Jesus. It comes upon a man named Stephen who boldly delivers a sermon of conviction and clarity about the person and work of Christ. Saul, who would come to know Jesus, is standing right there approving of this as it happens. Listen to this story and listen to the joy that is to be had for us in the midst of the greatest of suffering for Jesus. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. That is, that is pure hatred towards Stephen. But Stephen, he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is usually sitting at the right hand of God. In this moment, Stephen looks up into heaven and sees Jesus is standing up. Now, we don't know exactly why, but I think, 
I think it's because Jesus sees his own suffering and what Stephen's doing. And he's proud of him. And he loves him. And he presses him closer. And Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears. Literally, they covered their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. I think Stephen would tell you if we could ask him, this is the best moment of his entire life. And it was the moment of his death because he saw the glory of Jesus. He experienced the nearness of Christ that he had never experienced before because he was in the midst of suffering for the name of Jesus. And I think this moment had a profound impact on Paul who would later write that he was standing there. He saw the faith of Stephen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess to you right now that we just, it is so hard for us to believe that this is true. That there is joy, that there is blessing to be had in suffering for your name, Jesus. If we're honest, we just, we think that it's far better to just represent you faithfully and, and avoid suffering at all costs. Jesus, we thank you that you modeled for us a Savior who was willingly walking towards suffering to save us. Thank you that we're saved. And Lord, we need your help. Father, we beg of you. We beg that you would transform us, that you would make us people that view suffering for your name like this, that we would not be afraid of it, but that we would willingly walk towards it because we know that there's so much to be had of you in the midst of this, that to be faithful to you is better than anything else. To receive the warmth of your presence and your approval and your affection is far better. Would you help us? Would you make us people like this, Lord? Lord, we know that this is a prayer that you delight to answer. These are the kinds of people you want to make us to be. And so, Lord, we know that we are praying and asking for something that is according to your will. And so, God, we pray with all confidence and all boldness that, Holy Spirit, you would make us these kinds of people that would go into our city, into our workplaces, into our, our, to our neighbors, and that we would be the ones to willingly take a step towards the awkward, towards the suffering, towards whatever may come. of who we know you to be, Jesus. Help us. Help us, Lord, we pray in your name. Amen.